You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we are back with the August 31st, 2020 edition of the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv. Yeah, normally we'd be looking forward to the Labor Day weekend and we'd be gathering with family and friends and doing, you know, celebrating the end of summer. I don't think that's going to be happening this weekend. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, we'll make the best of what we got. Right. So right. one of the one of the real key issues right now uh, and going forward is whether or not we get a vaccine for COVID-19. Because until that happens, doing the fun Labor Day stuff with family and friends is probably not going to happen. Right, Fred Brown? It's going to be – it it could happen, but it'll, it, it'll be risky, especially for some people who are particularly susceptible. That's right. And, and so, of course, the law. Yeah, so we were just talking before we started, and the FDA is now saying that they're going to, you know, fast track the vaccine. Maybe not even wait till the end of uh, the clinical trials, which, according to you, is not typically done, right? This is a very, uh, this is a very uh, interesting period uh, uh, for. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Good to see you. Uh, oh. It's a very interesting period for vaccine development, and uh, you know, a few of us got together, especially after the. Uh, emergency use authorization that was recently given uh, for first uh, lab tests, uh, lab developed, clinical lab developed tests, uh, and second, uh, and just very recently, for uh, convalescent plasma. I have some slides and some thoughts that I thought you might be interested in and be interested in everyone's feedback, because um, I have to give a, a large presentation on some of this uh, on Wednesday. So let's see if, oh, that's the wrong one. I, I apologize. I, I got the wrong version up. Well, we're happy to give folks a sneak peek at your, uh, peek at your uh, presentation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no extra charge. <laughs> no extra charge. Yeah. So this is, um, uh, let me, let me just show you quickly. Uh, we have, um, I'll go this. I'll go through this fast, and then I, you guys can sort of get a get a, get a sense of it. Uh, so let me put on slideshow. So basically, we've got uh, what what looks like in the future to be drug cocktails, and you can see that they're basically th three big areas that they were working on. One is antivirals, and we have remdesivir already, as you know. Uh, it's for late stage people, uh, people who are uh, trying to reduce their 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 stay in the hospital from four <coughs> to ten days. Basically, uh, it has. Uh, no mortality improvement. So we've got we have to add more virals to this to create a real cocktail that'll actually do something for.
for us uh, to, to reduce mortality, which is what we're ultimately interested in. Then we have a whole set of antibodies. And you heard about the convalescent plasma. So if you look at mortality improvement, it's up to 3%. And I say up to because we really didn't do the proper trials in this case. We did open-label trials, which uh, really can't discern whether it's, uh, it's whether giving this uh, convalescent plasma is better than nothing. But from our uh, experiences with Ebola and other viruses, we think it's probably... Uh, possible that it has some mortality improvement. And so we think that overall, you see in that column, therapeutic impact versus cure, we've got about a 2% overall improvement. And then we have the immunomodulators with dexamethasone really being a star here. But overall, when you add all these cocktails together, we think we're having an impact on therapeutically on COVID to date of about 5%. Uh, and you add that then to other clinical methods, care pathways, off-label prescribed pharmas, pharmaceuticals to date, and we're likely still under 20% overall improvement. But when you consider the fact that this disease has only been with us for eight months, that's pretty good. And of course, this doesn't uh, disclude the opportunity that we may actually have some blockbusters in the future. So the big question that we had as epidemiologists, virologists, and I do a lot of work in drug development, and I'm working with one of these, with one of these companies, so I got to be a little bit careful about what I say. But um, our big question is, what about this? What about this uh, um, uh, emergency uh, use authorization? What could that look like? So right now we created, we started the the administrator started warp speed vaccine timelines. Originally we were hoping, and and most of the uh, most of us developers are hoping that we would do a, what they call a solidarity trial, the WHO solidarity trial. This is a this is a trial that uses a master protocol and then uh, you compares all of the drugs with the same set of protocols, methods, and so on. And it randomizes the drug and the people who are getting the drug and the investigators uh, with placebos, and then compares all the different drug uh, responses. Uh, and this is for vaccines, particularly, uh, it's particularly uh, uh, you know, effective in looking at trying to compare drugs. And you have about, right now we have 176 different vaccines, and it's gonna be hard to know which one's better or worse, uh, especially those that are being created by big companies versus some of the more innovative small companies. So we've got four, in warp speed, um, the four big companies that have capacity capability got together and they did deals with the United States government. And right now, if you look at traditional ways, so if you look at traditional uh, vaccine development, it takes 10.7 years and the chance of getting on the market is about 6.7%. That's average <clears throat> development. Uh, since you know we started working with vaccines, uh, mod modern vaccines in the 1900s. Um, so this development, of course, has been done in eight months, uh, and we are already at phase three clinical trials, which normally you don't enter until at least year five, six, seven of an average trial. You know, five was quick, fast as we ever did it. It was kind of year two, three uh, for mumps, um, and uh, that was a real fast trial. But you can see we're, we're already at, at, so we're already looking at Moderna, uh, who has started on July 11th. They have 30,000 doses uh, planned and this goes to a two, this is a two dose uh, uh, test. And then they have an evaluation, FDA submission, review and licensure, probably be ready in, in July. Well, we could accelerate that maybe to June on, on a traditional FDA kind of approval process. Uh, Pfizer, 
30,000. And again, 30,000 is sort of the minimum you want in a trial like this. Uh, for a variety of reasons, the statistics you know, work out that you can just barely sort of get to a, a point of population understanding at 30,000 doses. It's, uh, and you can see J&J decided to do 60,000 doses because they were concerned it wasn't quite enough dose. Uh, Pfizer is doing a 30,000 dose. It takes two doses. They do it, and you can get a sense of their timeline, quite very similar to Moderna. They're about two weeks behind, but they, I think they'll catch up with their uh, FDA review and licensure and FDA submission because they have uh, more capability and, and they already have manufacturing capacity scale. J&J only needs one dose. So they, even though they're going to start September 5th, they're actually going to be done at about the same time again that Moderna and, and, uh, and, and, and Pfizer is. And finally, AstraZeneca... Uh, has, has also only has one dose. They're planning a 30,000 trial. So you can get a sense of what's going on here. They're started, you're starting to get a lot of trials that are going to be completed right around November. Okay. And if you think about where we are going to be in November, um, we're going to be right at election time. And if you, you know, work this all out, I think we could actually have some, so Moderna will have adverse events reports uh, in September and October. They're already planning that. That's pretty easy to do. You basically look at adverse events. You look at signals. You can, and, and these are what they call event-based trials. So you treat the, the studies over time. November 1st, at 57 days post the second, the first uh, jab. Uh, so you could actually have infection level data and adverse event level data uh, you know, at least in raw form, uh, you know, on November 1st. Now, usually you go through evaluations. It takes 14 days. And you have, and you have, then you have to, you know, and that's an absolute minimum. So right, right around November 1st, literally, is, is the day you'd be done with 14-day evaluation and have data on that. Um, the Pfizer would be ready uh, on November 20th or so. If everything goes, this is, if everything goes perfectly and, uh, and, but the difference between Pfizer study and Moderna study is they're actually looking at cohort set analyses. So they're actually taking 500 and 500 and 500 and closing and 500 and closing. So you can imagine them putting together 12 cohort studies uh, around, and they're planning to have about on October 5th, they're planning to have the adverse events data and about 6,000 patients of cohort data. That'd be 12 rounds. Uh, on October 5th, which would give them enough time to sort of evaluate that cohort by November 1st again and be ready. J&J is interesting because they're doing 60,000 studies, but they're doing, they only have one dose. So they don't, they, they don't have that 29 day wait period that the other two do. So they actually catch up and, and, and could actually, uh, because they have so much capacity and capability in this space, could actually beat Moderna and Pfizer. They also are using global sites. And if you think about, you know, uh, what we're doing here in the United States is we don't allow, we won't, we probably will not allow what they call challenge testing, which means that you give the person the drug and then you wait for, uh, and then you actually expose them to the virus. But you can imagine that uh, there are countries uh, and, 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 and patients, uh, subjects who might want to get paid a lot and do that, take that risk, especially if they're young. And so you see a lot of sites, uh, you know, over half the sites, I think, for J&J are actually in Brazil, which is sort of interesting. Um, mm. uh, so, that, you know, and then, so they could actually, you know, get evaluated results around November 1st as well for 30,000 people. And AstraZeneca uh, is, gonna, is, is saying that they're not going to be ready until uh, until uh, end of December, um, but um, they're going to drag along. Uh, they, they, do, they do a phase one, two, th and three uh, uh, 
trial process, which means you're going to drag along 600 patients from phase one, two, three that you have some ex, you know, experience with uh, to add to their, their trials. And they could be ready in early to mid-November with uh, an intern data. Uh, and that's what they're you know, sort of looking at like on their website. So when you look at all that, if you have 50% effectiveness and you're able to see the separation between your two, uh, those who have had the test and those who have not had the, the vaccine, excuse me, those who've had a placebo versus those are, who are injected with the real drug. Um, and if you wanted to get up to 7,500 patients evaluated, and if the phase one, two data holds on the, on the in, uh, uh, phase one, two data holds in terms of the level of durability uh, of the titers, and you have a 10% incidence level, you could actually get to 7,500 people and, showing, and show some separation between the two study groups. And at that point, if you show safety, the, EU, the EUA, you know, really raw guidelines are, we, you know, this is for things that have been demonstrated to be safe that we're wondering about our effectiveness is. And that's really designed for t- tests and, and drugs that are out there that you want to try on somebody else and you know they're pretty safe. Um, it's not really designed for vaccines, but there's an awful lot, if you look at this timing, of pressure that's going to be imposed on the politicians and the scientists uh, at this point. You can imagine kind of as you approach November 1st. What's interesting about this is that, of course, a a lot of people will have voted already uh, in mail. Uh, And um, uh, so a lot of them won't have the the, the information about how the vaccine is doing uh, at the end of October. So there's an extra sort of twist on this. So here's what's going to happen if you overlay this with what's happening with what we're projecting for for most likely to happen with the disease prevalence. You see that um, basically we think that uh, almost all the models are showing we're going to have a slow sort of plateauing uh, through October. But then toward the end of October, kind of Halloween uh, and especially uh, by Thanksgiving, we will be in a rapid phase of escalation because everyone's going to be moving indoors um, and, uh, and uh, in the fall, we'll have a little bit of downward trend in the south. But we think, and, and if you look at the projections, um, most of the projections are up at six to 7,000, about 6,000 deaths a day. Uh, in, in December 1st. If you look at the IHME data, if you look at Columbia data, if you look at uh, Texas data, if you look at Los Alamos data, that's all what they're projecting. And my models also are, are projecting that. Um, and I can, you know, you can argue about the use of masks and that would, that would reduce the death rate by about half, but not much more than that. So you can get a sense of, you know, how much pressure is going to be happening right around election day. And then, of course, we move into a lame duck session when uh, just as this whole uh, uh, just as this whole uh, uh, escalation uh, of, of disease state is occurring. Um, and there's just going to be an awful lot of pressure, I think, to uh, put put this the emergency use authorization into this environment. I'm not I'm not forecasting this, but you can get a sense of just of this in this scenario of just how uh, of how difficult this is, especially because, you know, when you do the do all the math and look at the capacity of the hospitals uh, in the United States, once you get to seven to nine thousand deaths a day and project how many you know ill people are in the hospitals as a times 30 in the hospital, plus the the addition of the flu, uh, which is 200,000 more beds uh, per month in the hospital, all of a sudden, uh, you get to a point where you have overwhelmed um, the hospital capacity. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
at the point of overwhelming hospital capacity, that's when everybody right now, you know, people aren't too worried about a thousand deaths a day because you don't really see it. Uh, everyone's being taken care for in the hospital. You don't have any overruns, particularly except in you know big, big burst areas. When you're up at 7,000 a day, you've got every hospital in the country running refrigerator trucks and you've got ambulances stacked up outside. And what was the peak death rate? Excuse me, pardon me for for interrupting, but what was the peak death rate during the initial uh, real run up of this thing, say back in April and May? What was the peak deaths per day in the country? Uh, Just over 2000, as I recall. Uh, So this is is three times that we're looking at? Yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're projecting, uh, almost all the models are projecting a, a real rapid escalation uh, right around Thanksgiving through Christmas okay. and in the next year. Yeah, so it's, it's a, uh, and th- don't forget, our, our initial bursts were only in, in New York City, and we had some in Detroit a little bit in Washington, uh, and a little bit here and there. I'm talking about uh, what, what happens is, um, uh, is that, unfortunately, we're not controlling the virus. And so it's slowly building up. It's a momentum of steam. And we're getting to a point where these little bubbles of, of, uh, of, of expansion like we had and breakout like we had in New York, Detroit uh, in April are going to actually come together across the whole country. That, that's the big risk is that we get into exponential growth, not just in, in hot spots, uh, uh, but in uh, along, you know, in big enough regions of the country that, you know, we, we overwhelm large regions of the country. And that's what's sort of being projected by most of the major modelers right now. Now, there are better scenarios when you use a lot of masks and we say 90% mask rate uh, would, would then reduce that to 3,500 a day. And, but then that would, again, you know, reduce it, your, your capacity push. But we're, this is what we're, what a lot of people are looking at right now, unfortunately. Now, you can see if we're able to actually, if we actually have an effective vaccine, you could actually start to you know, impact um, and, and, and push that, that curve back down again, especially if you give it to the healthcare workers on the front line, give it to some of the military. And then especially uh, in April, May, if you've demonstrated effectiveness and, and safety for the susceptible populations, you know, over 65s, especially over 70s, um, at that point, you could really start to flatten the curve and push it actually down. Uh, and you can get a sense of how many doses we could actually, if, you know, uh, if, if you if you look at the doses we've got uh, and we're projecting, now these are hopeful hopeful projections. Frankly, we could actually vac- vaccinate the fifty percent of Americans who seem to want a, uh, an early an early vaccine and be vaccinated by it uh, by the end of the year uh, or so, and uh, without actually affecting you know uh, too much uh, overall capacity of the world, um, and uh, and it's, and it would it would kind of uh, it, it would cost quite a bit, uh, but it's obviously worth it compared to you know a hundred billion a, a, a month that it's costing us right now. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Did you factor in the seasonal flu into this, or is this just COVID? This is just COVID. You throw in mm-hmm. seasonal flu, flu, and that, and you get you know, huge problems. Yeah, yeah. It's actually two hundred hospital beds, two hundred thousand hospital beds a month. And, and then, then on these yeah. four main ones. Uh, eventually, you know, they're all going to come up with something, whether it works or not. Do they then continue forward? I mean, we're not going to have one universal vaccine. We're still going to have multiple vaccines, right? Oh, yes. That, we'll have multiple vaccines. We'll need it for the capacity. And, and we'll also need it because these aren't going to be that effective initially, I don't believe. Let's take a look at that. The downside of doing EUAs this early and, frankly, a little bit uh, in, a, in a novel way, which we've never used before, and so, you know, is that you can see that, 
Um, you know, here, so here's a, here are the global gambits, right? China is, is started this. They're doing military inoculations with almost no data starting in June already. And mm -hmm. that's sort of a phase. They're doing a phase three equivalent in their military. And they're having a lot of adverse events. Um, the Russia approved Sputnik V. That was a pretty innocuous adenovirus uh, um, uh, vector vaccine based on cold uh, based on on cold uh, antigens. And and so they 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 put this into practice before they even tested a hundred people in, in phase two. So there's there's sort of a sadly there's sort of a an escalation here <laughs> that's occurring that the U.S. could fall into a trap of of doing an interim evaluation of about 120,000 phase three subjects. And uh, of that, you might have 30,000 total, um, you know, showing showing some some effect um, or waiting. And, uh, you know, I can just imagine sort of, we're almost there, well, we'll just give it a little bit more chance. Don't, don't worry about the fact we're, you know, a lot of people are dying or that we're not doing, uh, you know, we're not uh, wearing masks effectively or whatever, just we're, just wait for the vaccine, and that that can really cause a lot of challenges. And the Lancet actually came out. That's the British, the major British uh, medical journal, and it said there is a danger. You can see the quote: "There is a danger that a political and economic pressures for rapid introduction of a COVID nineteen vaccine could lead to widespread deployment of a vaccine that is in reality only weakly effective." perhaps because of misleading promising result from an underpowered trial. Uh, underpowered, they mean not enough patients were tested and all of a sudden they came to a conclusion that wasn't accurate. There are a lot of issues that as a drug developer, you worry about when you have uh, an acceleration of underpowered, what could be underpowered um, uh, studies. And these, I listed some of them. I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some, but the first is that you could sort of get um, bar muscles, right? You could say, oh, you know, I have a vaccine, vaccine now, let's go out and have fun. Uh, and if the vaccine doesn't work, then you actually, you know, accelerate um, the, the spread of that vaccine. Um, the other thing is, of course, you start diverting uh, because you think you have a good vaccine, you spend, invest a lot of money in the manufacturing scale up and so on, and you start diverting all of your attention from things that actually work better in the long run and, uh, and, and you lose out. And of course, the third issue is right away, you lose all your patients, right? Because as soon as you give a person an option, you can use this approved vaccine or you can and, and have a 100% chance of getting that vaccine, or I can give you, I can put you as part in part of a, a trial and there's only a half 50% chance you're going to get the, vac, <laughs> the, the real stuff and a 50% chance you're going to get saline solution. Everyone in that situation, especially if they're feeling susceptible, is going to take the vaccine, not the saline. And like I said, they're not going to enroll patients for tests anymore. Of course, uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for adverse events, which we're seeing in China. All right, uh, as you pointed out, Matt, there's a huge role in erosion of public trust if you move too fast, and don't, don't, that doesn't even make sense to people uh, to move, go that fast. And the, the, there's a whole bunch of other issues that you've got that we can. Uh, very, what it turns out is you have a vaccine in place and then you have to compare all the other vaccines to it and suppose it's you know 20% effective all of so all of a sudden you're having to compare your better vaccines with something that's you know sort of weak but it forces you to do an awful lot more testing right you can imagine trying to get that separation It'll, it won't take 30,000 people, it'll take 100,000 people, and it delays everybody else, uh, all, all the other perhaps better vaccine manufacturers in their trials, and it costs a lot more. And of course, there's huge socioeconomic and political disruptions when you have to pick winners and losers, saying, okay, well, we're going to take your vaccine, but not your vaccine. We're going to take this person to be vaccinated, but not that person to be vaccinated, and so on. There's going to be a lot of, of, of difficulty with that, and the faster you try to implement something like that, the more 
the more difficult and harsh the dislocations are. And of course, it's just exhausting, right? I mean, it's just very, very tiring to go through all these hype cycles all the time. Uh, and people are sort of staying up at night worrying whether the vaccine is going to work or not. So um, overall, what I think is going to happen, I don't, I don't, this is not a pred- prediction. It's just a, a scenario of what is possible. You know, if everything works brilliantly and continues to work brilliantly for the vaccine manufacturers and everything goes perfectly all the way through, which so far, frankly, it's vastly exceeded my expectations. I thought they'd just be getting into phase three clinical trials now. And they were already in phase three clinical trials you know, a month, a month ago, and they've already enrolled over 25,000 patients in those phase three trials. That, that is shockingly fast. So you can get a sense of, of this is what could be. The real risk, as the Lancet said, is that we, is that we offer something up that doesn't work very well. And here's my sense of the other issues that, 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 that are here. The first question is, is it, you know, can we reduce transmission? And my sense of this is that, you know, we can probably reduce transmission by having a, by having a vaccine that works somewhat by you know, 50 to 60%. Can it protect against severe disease? Well, unfortunately, these, none, of these, none of these trials actually look at disease, um, uh, at long-term disease. So we aren't actually going to be able to to tell that, but my sense of this is that it could, it could, and eventually we may find out that it does after, you know, that most of these trials will go for two years. We may find you know, significant reduction in severe long-term effects, especially in the elderly. How safe is it? I think it's probably going to be safe for the, for the young, but not so much, not so safe for the compromised who are dying. Um, is it going to be durable? I don't think so. I think the tighter levels are going to show that we're going to have trouble when you look when you extrapolate the tighter levels that were projected and you know, that were actually published in phase one, two, you know, and, and you have to take a, you know, it's kind of challenging because it's not a, it's not a linear, uh, not a linear slope reduction, but it's actually a logarithmic slope reduction in durability and in, in, in tighter levels. Um, I think you know it's kind of nine months to a year. Uh, and I decided to be conservative in this case because this is actually the mo- thing we're most sensitive to in, in actually getting to herd immunity is how durable it is. So you want to be more conservative there. And finally, scalability, you know, how many doses will we have? And I think, you know, there's a good chance we'll have 100 million doses plus. So overall, in the first generation, my sense was that we would be at about um, at about a 30% overall effectiveness rate uh, for the first generation. And I think that if we if we go through a normal progression of the FDA, you know, kind of evaluation and a normal working of the number of patients and, and all of the hiccups that occur with that, we'll probably have that kind, that first solution in, you know, July of next year for the general public, possibly a little bit earlier if we do EUA for some of the, uh, for some of the more important uh, um, uh, populations that, that get things in advance, uh, like healthcare workers and first line. Uh, people. Hmm. Now, one of the things I read about the Spanish flu of a hundred years ago was it went away in part because it mutated into a more flu-like, uh, like the normal flu that we have. That's Do you right. think there's any chance that this uh, particular, the COVID will mutate into something easier to handle, I guess? Well, there were two effects. We're not sure which one is which one was most important. The first one was it did mutate and did sort of get to be a little bit less, uh, less, uh, less virulent. And don't forget, uh, our, our best estimates right now uh, with the flu uh, versus COVID is that COVID is about 100 times less mut- uh, mutable, mutable 
than the flu virus. So uh, the mutation rate of, of COVID uh, is, is, is around one times 10 to the sixth, um, 10 to the minus, minus sixth, and uh, for flu, it's ten, one times 10 to the minus fourth. Uh, in terms of number of generations and so on. So it's about 100 times, um, our best estimates right now are about 100 times less mutation uh, uh, friendly. Um, and that's because of, of the, actually the biology. The first issue is that the flu virus has actually four DNA chains to mutate uh, and it mutates randomly within generations uh, versus COVID only has one. And the second mm-hmm. is that COVID actually has an editor, which actually looks at every at every rep- reproduction and looks and 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 says yes, this one is 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 correct, and this one isn't. Flu does not have an editor, so those two things cause it to be a lot less mutable. The other big factor <coughs> in Spanish flu was we let it go so long that we actually got some herd immunity to it. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. We only got about a minute left. What do you guys think? Was it interesting, or do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's bleak as hell, but it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, five six thousand people a day bumping up against hospital capacity again, and not just in hot spots, but everywhere. That's that's not going to be a fun winter. No, no, it's really worrisome. It, it, we, we're worried about the countryside, especially people. You know, the the healthcare systems are less are are more fragile out in the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave all this good news for now. Uh, <laughs> well, it was good to see you guys. Let me know what you guys. Yes. Let me. Let me get, I'm happy to take I'm, any I'm, time. I'm going to go home and seal myself up in bubble wrap now. <laughs> David's always much yeah. more positive than I am. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll all head over to Dave Phillips Bar and just drink heavily, right? So, uh, <laughs> I'll let you know how it goes on Wednesday. I got That's that's the big discussion with the peer review guys. So we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks all right, very much, good. Fred Brown. And that's epidemiologist and infectious disease expert Fred Brown, a regular here on the TechCast. For right now, this is Matt Rausch. And Mike Brown. We'll be right back with another segment in just a minute. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And calling us from the library right now, it looks like, is Richard Steenen, our uh, esteemed cybersecurity expert. Um we haven't had you on in a while uh, because we've been having so much fun getting scared by uh, who I affectionately call Dr. Doom, Fred Brown, the epidemiologist, talking about COVID. Um, but I understand there are some uh, fresh um, insights into cybersecurity and the bad guys that you're going to have for us today. Yeah, yeah. Great to see you guys. So um, I've been 
all summer long, I've been talking to companies in this space called threat intelligence, um, or sometimes I'm calling it cyber threat intelligence because it's different than what spy agencies do about terrorists and what have you. So these guys, most of them mine something called the deep and dark web. So these are all the Tor sites, the, the Onion routing network. Um, which is kind of anonymous, and they they all set up these anonymous sites, and only they know where they are. Uh, and on them is where they say, "Hey, I got a batch of a million credit cards," and they'll like sell you a sample or give you a sample so you validate that they're still alive. And that's sometimes when you see a penny charge your credit card, that's the, the cyber thieves <clears throat> checking your to see if it's still active. Um, but in you know within twenty four hours of that there's going to be some huge charges uh, or your bank will be your bank account will be empty. So these guys uh, have spent the last 10, 15 years infiltrating those networks, posing as bad guys. And, mm. and then they just hook up a computer to read all of the chats on the entire forum all the time and put them in a big database. And then you as a customer of threat intelligence get access <laughs> to that database. And you would say, well, let's see if anybody's checked their, you know, the four digit of our bank credit card. And it'll say, yeah, all these forums are talking about this big breach that you had that you might not have known about. Um, or you can check, you know, is, is anybody in the underworld planning on kidnapping the CEO's kids? And you can find that out too. Um, so that's the threat intelligence space. So I've just spent, um, uh, all the time putting that together, just finished it today. Um, I can report in the industry, there are um, 66 vendors that provide services like this, all the different parts of it. And there are 4,600 employees at those vendors. And since uh, the beginning of the year, first they grew by 5%, but then they've lost 2% since COVID hit. So there's, you know, confirming the suspicion that COVID is having an impact even on things like the security industry. Hmm. So, and you've just, uh, so is, is this report that you've been working on, are you getting ready to release that? Yeah, yeah. So I'll publish most of the findings on Forbes, and then I'll actually sell the report to, you know, investors and uh, consumers of big enterprise IT solutions that will want to know all those vendors. And along with the written report, my analysis, they'll get the spreadsheet that I use to track all this data. And then first time ever, I'm going to update it every quarter because I get new data every quarter on uh, number of employees. So I can estimate who's growing and who's failing to grow. And I track all the investments that happen and then the mergers and acquisitions that happen too. Okay, so and so when is this going to be released? Well, September, September is tomorrow, so what, next, in September or when? In September, yeah, in September, you know, pretty much in time for, it'll be for the first half. The report covers the first half of 2020. And then, you know, I'm already starting the research for the third quarter. And then we'll have, you know, a, basically every quarter we'll release a new report. Huh. So uh, where can people go to get this report? Yeah, you just go to it-harvest.com. And then be, I, I asked this question. Uh, it, it, I'm sure there's a cost involved. What are you charging for something like this? Yeah, so what bugged me, when you, whenever you search on what's the market size for X, you eventually, almost immediately, get to 
one of these market research companies, um, which I figured out they're all pretty much the same company with different names based in India and they're all fake, you know? So they, when they launched the availability of their report for $10,000, they just, you know, do some Google searches, assemble something that they can put into their PDF template and they'll send you a redacted version as an example. And then after you pay them $10,000, they kick off the researchers to fill in the blanks. So this is the opposite of that. Um, so I'll charge $1,500 for a copy of the report and then $5,000 for an uh, annual subscription to the report. And you won't run off to India or anything like that, right? So I, I do use India for research. Um, so every every quarter, I've got to go through 3,000 vendors, check out how many employees um, of the vendors are on LinkedIn. And that's I can't do that in even a quarter. I couldn't do it myself. So I turn it over to my guy in India. He's got a team. They turn it around in two or three days. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. You also wanted to talk about Elon Musk's pig. Yeah. Gertrude, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who is going to be one of the most famous pigs since Babe. Um, so on Friday, I think it was, Elon Musk had a, a, the biggest reveal ever, right? So kind of mimicking what he did with Tesla a year before when he was revealing that they were ready to go to the self-driving car at the push of a button. Um, this was just as exciting. He's built something called Neuralink. Um, which he describes as a Fitbit inserted in your brain with lots of thin wires. And they, they basically use a robot that opens up your head, you know, drills a hole in your skull, implants, you know, hundreds of wires now, but eventually tens of thousands of wires uh, that can read and write to your brain neurons. And then they close it all up and it's an in, inpatient surgery. They, he showed off the robot that does that. He wants to get it down to several thousand dollars in order to do this operation and install it. Um, and then they think that they will be able to read impulses and then create impulses in your brain. And the first application is going to be uh, people with uh, cerebral palsy or, or quadriplegics or people who have had uh, you know, uh, spinal inju injuries. And the spinal injury one is cool because we, we know we can read the thoughts that initiate the motion of a, of a muscle. So they'll put another one lower below the break in your spinal cord and, you know, through Bluetooth, basically communicate with it and communicate your desire to move your legs to your legs. It's pretty exciting. And of so, course, so bypassing, in other words, bypassing the spinal cord injury that makes you unable to move your legs. Right. right. He's treating it like a, uh, a, a wired bypass a tap and then uh, another tap to bypass it it's very cool so we're going to be uh, the future people will be cyborgs or something then is that yeah right? yeah absolutely absolutely this will be uh, um there are people that uh, they can do that with now right there's this is a research thing that's been around for decades um but as usual elon musk takes the the basic research and he imagines what it could mean for the future and then he tries to build it and and, you know, he's been pretty successful building a space company out of nothing uh, when people have been talking about how to do it for decades as well. Um, well I was course, my, you know, my, my first thought in, in the what could possibly go wrong department is if they can put impulses, if, if they could make, you know, if they could send content to your brain as well as you being able to use these wires, somebody could 
you know, essentially hack your brain. I mean, yep. you know, and, and Completely. Make, you do, make you do something you don't want to do. I was just flashing in my mind on the Reggie Jackson scene from the Naked Gun movie where he's like, you know, I must kill the queen. Yep. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. Yep. Completely, <laughs> completely. That's what all those science fiction stories will be about. Um, <laughs> they, there were a bunch of people that asked about security, right? Because this is, uh, he did a live Q&A over Twitter. Yeah. Um, they described, they used the right words to describe, you know, containment and multiple layers and all the rest. But I still didn't feel comfortable right. because the concept is that the, um, you know, all of the thinking will be for the new device will be done in your cell phone and you'll communicate with your cell phone. And I don't think that's going to work. I think you need something different than the device that's getting hacked all the time in order to have such critical information and abilities. But that's okay. You have a separate cell phone, you know, because you do have to access the internet. Um, somebody asked him, will, will I be able to call my Tesla to come to my front door? And he said, absolutely, yes. Um, one of the engineers said he is on the program because he wanted to see telepathy, you know, so you would direct human to human transmission of your thoughts without having to formulate words. We'll see how that goes. Well, that's, that's not always a good idea. I can tell yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You definitely want to be able to turn that on and off. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody with Tourette's says it would be in real trouble, right? So, that's for sure. Yeah. That's for sure. But they could probably cure Tourette's, you know, that's yes, good, any, good any neurological disorder, uh, blindness, you know, replace your eyes with uh, cameras, deafness, give you the ability. Yeah, to I, I, I saw I saw some stuff about depression and anxiety, which is, you know, rampant these days. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Depression, anxiety, they mentioned, um, you know, those things that are neurological, right? Not the, you know, sometimes you should be depressed because things are pretty bad. Um, it, it just goes on and on when you, you know, so it's brand new world. You know, if he takes a company public, definitely buy it before it gets to the point where it has to split four or five to one, like Tesla did today. Yeah. No good. Yeah. Um, a brand fun. new world. You also wanted to talk about the uh, the chief security officer for Uber. Yeah. So uh, last week uh, we saw the Justice Department and the state, I don't know if it's the attorney general, um, filed uh, criminal charges against the former chief security officer at Uber. And that is just the, our, the world I live in is just in an uproar. Nobody knows what to think of this. This is a first uh, on many, many levels, but first time that a chief security officer has been held both personally liable for a uh, breach or the repercussions of a breach and criminally liable. Uh, so this person, Joe Sullivan, who's uh, currently the chief information security officer for Cloudflare, the company we all know because yesterday Cloudflare, Cloudflare went down along with uh, level three and CenturyLink. Um, but Cloudflare is uh, controversial in its own way. But now their CISO is under indictment for criminal charges while he is at Uber. He's also an attorney, former uh, uh, Justice Department prosecutor, got his way into the cybersecurity world and ended up at, at Uber, uh, which, you know, not all of us trust Uber to play fairly in the marketplace. Um and they they had had a massive breach in 2014. So the FTC doing what the FTC does was, you know, investigating to see if they had done the taken proper measures post breach in order to protect 
their drivers and customers' data. While the FTC was investigating, they had another breach in 2016, and they're accusing Joe Sullivan of not revealing that to them and taking actions to prevent them from learning of it. So basically, he was covering up knowledge of uh, a felony. Uh, to make things worse, he paid the hackers uh, $100,000 to um, not tell anybody about the breach. Mm. So uh, it's, had always the, it's the cover-up that always, always is the cover up. in the crime, right? Well, it's, you've got all the evidence of the cover-up. The crime's a little harder to prove. Right. Uh, but if you lie and, and cover up information, they'll be after you. So, We're gonna have to leave it at that. That fifteen minutes blew right by. So, if want to take a look at your research report or check you out, how do they do that, Richard? Yeah, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at CyberWar, um, where I make sure everybody knows about anything that I'm doing. All, All right. right, Richard Richard Steenen of IT Harvest. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Mike. And we'll be right, right back with another uh, with another segment of the M Squared Techcast in just a moment. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast with a fellow Mike and I have both known for a good long while now. He is sort of the dean of uh, angel investing in Michigan, David Weaver. So welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you, Matt. You've been identified many ways. I don't know about dean of the angel investors. That's the first, but I like that, actually. So, or, or the grandfather of angels. The grandfather <laughs> of, the, uh, of, of the angels. Let's, uh, uh, well, you've, let's start off with, I'm assuming most people that watch this show know what an angel investor is, but just in case, why don't you explain what an angel investor is? Yeah, these are um, individuals that have the net worth of at least a million dollars plus, excluding the cost of their own personal home property um, or annual income of at least 200K um, in the last three years, um, repeating or with their spouse of 300K a year type of thing, uh, income. So, so, so somebody like Matt Rouse then, right? Sorry? Yeah. So, somebody like Matt Rouse then, right? So, there you go. Yeah. 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 You, you think far too highly of my investing acumen, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> so David is, uh, gosh, you know, he was the Great Lake Angels, and, and then uh, you teamed up with, with Duran, and uh, you formed Cityside Angels, and then I just saw you sent me a week or two ago a report for Birmingham Angels. So are you are all three of these groups active or what? <laughs> yeah, um Great Lakes Angels um, is evolving into being a fund, $10 million angel fund 
in that same space where you do pre-seed and seed level investing. Great Lakes Angels uh, was the first group in the state 2002. Charter member of the Michigan Venture Capital Association and the uh, Angel Capital Association, which is global now in the way of that. And all angel investing, early stage, pre-VC investing. Okay. Um, so we put that on the table. We'll start fundraising probably um, later in September pick that up again. We put on hold because we had a lot of folks who are interested in doing their deals rather than being in a fund. So we started Birmingham Angels based here in Oakland County, but servicing all Southeast Michigan and investors from all over the state uh, are joining and some folks from New York, New Jersey even. But that is a group where we have individual uh, checks written by the investors themselves into deals they see and we bring to them. Used to be in face-to-face at our office above Walgreens in Birmingham there next to Papa Joe's. And now there are virtual uh, Zoom meetings, but we're still seeing a lot of deals. And we started having, we started the group in last summer and then had our first meeting September, October, November at the offices there and um, ran uh, January, February and uh, March. And so um and then when the report we did was through June of that period of time, just nine meetings, we had 10 companies get funded out of 30 presenting mm. 10 out of 30. That's like 33 and a third percent. I mean, you do the math. Yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty high for that. And I think by the time we get done with uh, September, we're going to be above that. We've got four deals in play right now and probably close on three of those before the middle of uh, September. So no. we're very fortunate. We have angels that are not sitting on their hands when they see a deal they like, and we work real hard to pick them good deals. And it shows that because they're investing in them. So uh, we're getting funding. It's close to uh, 900K in uh, nine months of deals. You know, um, So we're, we're anxious for more deals and more investors. Okay, so, what, so what sectors are the hottest right now? I know back, back when we first met, it was mostly – either IT services, software, or life sciences, are, there st- are those still sort of the big three? Yeah, we've got, a, we're, we're very eclectic. We're deal-driven, not sector-driven so much. But um, what's really hot is um, wearable technology. Mm. And we're seeing a lot of um, medical device companies um, coming in right now, solving COVID-type issues, but also reducing costs for the hospital. You can't put something in the market anymore unless you knock out a cost someplace to embrace it. So uh, the six months there, we had four medical device deals, two SaaS deals, one wearable, two B2B and one B2B2C type of thing deal. And uh, the four in play right now, another B2B, two medical and one more SaaS. So we're all over the map on this. We just want to find something that looks like it's going to have a relatively short exit and need not need that much in the way of millions of dollars to follow to get to market and get acquired. And just to translate what he said, B2B is business to business. SaaS is software as a service. B2C is business to consumer. Um, Again, I'm assuming this audience is uh, up to these things, but there may be folks that didn't quite understand what you were talking about. Yeah, no, it's going to break that down. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I I think um, we're very fortunate that the investors have signed up you know, are, are willing to part with their money when they see something they get very passionate about. And it's not a gut feel, it's uh, it's uh, stats. And one of the things we do is uh, one of our secrets for getting things done so fast, and most of the deals we've done are done in less than 60 days from the time they pitch, which uh-huh. is remarkable. 
I've been raising money and a CEO myself before, and it's like three, six months <laughs> to then get a no. <laughs> if it's yes, and it drags out to get the term sheets done, you know. So uh, we, we, if it's a no, they find out early. If it's a yes, we move quickly. And one of our biggest secrets is the software we have that uh, Dorian helped get started a couple of years ago called SidePitch. So anyone listening out there, if you're an entrepreneur looking to raise capital, I don't care whether you're in Michigan or not, sidepitch.com is a place to put your deal because more and more investors are signing up to look for deals and uh, can be seen and visible by a lot of folks. How is that spelled? S-I-D-E-P-I-T-C-H, SidePitch, okay. all one word. Okay. Um, and um, it's it's great platform because uh, everything's transparent for the investors. They can see all the due diligence things, everything the company puts on there, including a gap table, which oftentimes is something that investors want to see, and companies don't think of putting that in there. We know we know who's in the deal, money wise and debt wise, right. and all that. It helps us make the decision much faster, move forward. Um, so we're we're hoping maybe get the fund launched this fall. And um, side pitches is, is great. We'd like to make it available to all, all investors, individuals, and groups in the state of Michigan. So we have one platform that we can have everybody on and share the due diligence, everything, and find everything there. Like right now, when we have companies that I want to syndicate after our money's in them, I can send a link to their deal to another investor or, or investor group in Michigan or elsewhere and say, here's the deal. You can read everything the company's put in. You don't have to company doesn't have to go and add everything all over again to another place. You know, they can forward all the information, make it real quick for the next person or, or an entity to make a decision on it. Okay. So what else can we talk about here? Now I, I you gave me a long list of things you wanted to discuss. So what would you like to talk about next? Well, I think to end on a good note for today's session is that the good thing is that there are investors that are out there seeing uh, money sitting on the sideline that's not going to go in the market with the volatility right now. They're looking for something where they can park that money, know that's in companies that are normally two years, sometimes plus, before they're really in the market. So all the, the nonsense that's going on in the market right now is not really affecting these companies. They're, they're not in that space yet. By the time they get in there, things will change, and they'll have solutions that are still going to be out at that time. So it makes a good sense to uh, put your money over there with these companies and wait three to five years for an exit. The goal is obviously to have three to five X return or better on your money. But there's a lot of excitement. We're even seeing deals. Uh, we're focused on Michigan, but we've got deals. I got one in the queue from California. Uh, Dara and I look at deals coming from Israel. A lot of good technology there. There's more VCs in Israel than anywhere in the country except Germany and the U.S., because uh, all the uh, the deal flow coming out of there is just incredible. We want a piece of that. Yeah, Israel, I know, is really big on cybersecurity, and I believe healthcare is another big area for yeah. them, right? And agritech is also one of the specialties we like, and they're very strong in that because they're living in a desert. They learn to do marvelous things with uh, plants and plant-based uh, technology. Yeah, yeah. I was. Is there, uh, is there much going on in Michigan in terms of renewable energy, clean energy deals? I don't know about that. We normally have not seen those deals, and I'm not sure we're anxious to see those kind of clean energy deals either. They're a long play and normally lots of money. Um, yeah. So we're staying away from those. Um, we are, let's see, we are doing some um, 
deals in, um, I already mentioned wearable. Um, occasionally we get some ending like consumer type deals. Like uh, we reinvested in a company uh, that I'm sure you heard of um, called, um, uh, we're pulling a blank out right now. It's, um, it's, uh, it's on the music uh, market right now, and it's um, getting a lot of good traction on it. Uh, boy, well, we'll pass on that for now. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, if someone's interested in joining your group. Other, you've already yeah. told them that they have to have a high net worth. Right. But I'm sure there's other things they have to do. I think they have to make an uh, – I, I know what it was before. You have to make an annual commitment of money. Yes, most of the groups have a membership fee to be in yeah. the group. And uh, the membership fee and us gives them access to side pitch with no extra charge, but there is a fee. And um, we typically will have 10 events a year that they can attend some in the, hopefully in person in the future, but or at least virtually right now and um, um, get to meet other investors. And um, also a good part of our deal flow is coming from our investors. They have their ears to the ground and run across things out there. It's quite often we'll get at least one or two more events, uh, excuse me, uh, deal flow from our own investor groups, which are, are great and syndicate with other groups around the state. Some of the companies we invest in were passed to us from another group and vice versa. So in a typical deal, it could be four or five uh, angel investors, could be different groups, could be two to 250,000, could be more, could be less, but in that yeah. ballpark, right? Most of, the, most of the deals we're looking at are asking for either 250 up to a million and a half, maybe 2 million. And most of the companies are pre-revenue or right at the cusp of getting their revenue. If they're coming to us for a $5 million deal, um, we will not touch that. That's, that's that's a venture capital deal then, right? Uh, it better have most of the deal done. <laughs> you want to come in with 250 or $500, $5 million deal and wait and see how long it takes to raise the rest of $4.5 million. You know, that's, that's a stretch and too much risk. It's already risky being a company pre-revenue. Um, but yeah, right, we're looking for deals. Yeah, what's, what's your what's your website? How can people get more information on what you're doing? Well, Birmingham Angels is under the website of Cityside Ventures, which is really the management for Birmingham Angels. We provide the backroom and the management of Birmingham Angels. We're not doing funding into Cityside Ventures per se, even though we have some companies in their portfolio over there before I joined them. But Birmingham Angels is what we're managing, and then we'll be managing the, the fund when that gets launched for Great Lakes Angels as well. But so they would look citysideventures.com. And like everybody else these days, uh, no in-person meetings, uh, but you can participate uh, virtually, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And by our Birmingham Angel meetings are by invitation only. But every month we also conduct a couple educational seminars, one on introduction to angel investing, for high net worth folks that like to learn what this is before they try and stick their toes in the water. Sign up for one of those or reach out to me and I'll, I'll send you an invite. The other one's an introduction to Birmingham Angels to learn a little more about the group itself. But those are webinars or, or Zoom meetings we conduct as well with Q&A. Okay, sounds great. Uh, David Weaver, uh, man with many hats, uh, but right now you can reach him through uh, Cityside, uh, Cityside Ventures, Ventures or Cityside Angels? Cityside Ventures. Ventures.com. Yeah. 
Okay, sounds great. All right, thank you, David, and thanks to our other guest today, Richard Steenan, and uh, our very own in-house epidemiologist, Fred Brown. Interesting yeah. show today, Mike. There's there's some some scary stuff and some hopeful stuff here. Well, we try to have a nice blend because lately we've just been scaring the pants off everybody, right? So uh, I want to be a bit hopeful here, right? All right. <laughs> there's there's all right. hope for startups. People are still looking at them and funding them. So that's yeah. always encouraging. That's a great thing. All right. All right. Thanks. We'll be back uh, next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern time for right now. This is Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And you've been watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. <laughs>